0: Today's guest on the Narrative Monopoly podcast is my friend Bubba Atkinson. This conversation spans all things digital media, specifically the time frame of around 2015 to 2018. Bubba was really in the thick of things as the editor-in-chief of IJ Review, which was at one point the largest publisher on Facebook by Views. And then he left to become an early employee of Axios. And He goes through that entire timeline on today's podcast. So without further ado, let's press play. All right, Bubba, welcome to the Narrative Monopoly podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: No, thank you. You have done a lot in media and you have a lot to say about media. And this podcast is roughly themed around media and the narrative monopoly, which is a a large product of the media right now. And so I want
1: to first dive in and tell the audience uh, who are you? Big question there. I'm Bubba Atkinson. I am originally from Charleston, South Carolina. Found my way, uh, asked backwards following up to DC. And um, I was the first employee of, of IJ Review. And, you know, that was a, a viral site that blew up from 2012 to 1516. And then I, I helped to start Axios. Um, I got to know. Mike Allen and, and Jim Bandehai and those guys and moved over there and, uh, worked there for two and a half, three years. And then, um, I've just been consulting in uh, digital strategy since then.
0: I think IJ was the biggest publisher on Facebook by views at one point,
1: right? Uh, we were, we were up there at the very least. I mean, it was like, um, I mean, it felt like it was a little bit of a race. Like we'd get the rankings and it was like up worthy the us, uh, Mike.com was like a little bit after us. Um, But yeah, we were, we were towards the top, like pound for pound. We were um, one of the strongest like shares per, you know, fan or whatever metric they had back then. Like we were, we were right there at the top.
0: All right. We'll, we'll get into that in a bit. I think uh, one more question to kick us off here is, do you consider yourself a producer of this podcast?
1: I'm an outside consultant. I I bear no responsibility for it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, no no, liability on what is yeah. said over these airwaves.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, a little insight to the audience here is Bubba and I work pretty closely together right now on a, on a handful of projects, which is why it was easy to get him on. So it is, a, I guess, an official producer duty as you got a guest on, which is yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm here for uh, when there's a bad week, when booking doesn't go right, like that's when you're going to hear me.
0: That's fair. And interesting enough, we had to pull the, the ripcord and then all of a sudden all the dominoes fell and a ton of interviews dropped at the same time. But we're still happy to have you. So let's uh let's jump on into Axios. When did you start at Axios?
1: It was uh, the summer of 2016. So if you, you jump back to that time, um, you know, you're really going into that uh, election you know the hillary clinton and uh and donald trump race was really really heating up at that point in time
0: at what point in the company's life cycle did you join axios
1: so i was i was number 10 um they had hired a uh a, a cto and a, a cdo design officer and uh they had come from new york times labs they'd hired a um an editor-in-chief nick johnston and um I think I came in right on the exact same day as uh, uh, Kate Gartner, Kate Meisner now. She was going to lead sales. She had come from Politico. So there were all these pieces around, and um, we had a hard time identifying exactly what job I would have, but um, I was kind of like the glue in between all of those. Um, I was helping turn that idea into a reality, both from the design of the site, the the experience of the site, the the content that you saw, but also the operation side. So, you know, I helped Nick hire a lot of the, uh, the editorial folks over the next few months. And uh, we, we interviewed just, I mean, dozens upon dozens of people. And then uh, about three weeks before we launched, uh, you know, we had been talking about it for a long time for about six months. And we, we really uh, started figuring out like, what does this look like? Like we, this was a blitz to, you know, put all those ideas on paper. Um, and I played a big role in that at that time
0: besides interviewing, I know that you do, you did do, you did have one very large contribution to Axios, which lives on to this day, which was the story format,
1: right? Yeah. So, uh, it was, it was the first day of, uh, of trials. I forgot what we called it as practice. We were calling it practice because the Alan Iverson thing, but Jim brings me an article and it was like, I mean, it was like eight in the morning. I mean, at that time I was uh, you know, I didn't have a wife and kids and all that stuff. So getting to work at 7:30, 745 every day was like pretty much the norm. Walked in with a you know a breakfast sandwich and he's like he, they get up at like five in the morning. They get up at like four in the morning. They they're working out at like Orange Theory at like 5:30 or 6 or something like that. Him and Mike. So they're all jazzed up by the time people get in late at like 7:30, 745. But Jim, he he drops down this uh this like five paragraph article on the Treasury Secretary, and he's like, "What do you do with this on social?" And I was like, "Uh, we, we're not gonna post this to social. Like this would this is just like it's not gonna do well." And he's like, "What do you do?" And I was like, G- "Give me a minute." So I ate my sandwich, I was drinking my coffee, and I was just looking at it, and I was like, "Okay, like." you know, this is, you know, it's kind of boring for me, but like if Jim said it, it's like an important story. I think Jim's got like a really, really good editorial eye. And, um, you know, we had talked about like being short, we had talked about having these, these axioms at that point, but we never actually like laid it down. Like, how is this going to look? And, um, I, uh, I came up with a draft and, you know, basically said, like, here's, here's like the crux of like, what you need to know from this. And then I I put in um, some bullet points and started pulling out those axioms that we had kind of set aside. And um, I had uh, come up with the first draft. And I, I, I got Justin Green, who had worked with me over at IJ Review to come over. And he's a, you know, just been one of my favorite colleagues I've ever worked with. And he is just a monster on the news desk, like one of the best guys you can work with. Uh, I ran it by him. And, he edited it. And, and I think that that's a, a, a great role. Um, I think I have some good ideas, but like a guy like him is just excellent to have coming behind you. And that was the the birth of the format. And then, I mean, we're talking minutes later, it was how do we get everybody to, to learn this? How can you really like, you know, kind of cram this down the operational throats of everybody was there? I mean, you got to think we, we hired brand new kids. Like, I mean, they were 22, 23 years old and, and they were all like super duper smart, but they were inexperienced. So it's like, how do you get them to write this? How can you make this like really institutional? But at the same time, you had these guys like Dan Primack. And I mean, he's like, Primack's one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with in my entire life. Um, You also have to get that guy on board with this format too. So how do you thread the needle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I mean, it was really like, uh, I will say like, I was kind of the last piece of it coming together, like. The stuff that matt and alexis they were our our cto and and cdo they you know they really knew how to take this idea that jim had which was like smart content for smart audiences those people don't have a ton of time they just want to get straight to the point um they had done such a good job of, of turning that into a um like a format on like the website and then it was really like how can we put the words uh into a format that fits inside of that you know ux ui and all that kind of stuff so um, it, it, you know, I, I might've played a, a big piece in how you see it in like that smart brevity format, but like, it really was what everybody was trying to work on. And, and, you know, that started with Jim, you know, he wrote that, that famous manifesto back in the day, all the design work. And then it, it really came together, uh, those last few weeks before we launched.
0: I want to go on a quick side street. You said that Justin was amazing on the news desk. What does that mean? What makes someone great in that position?
1: he just like, it's like his metabolism is, is super high. Um He, when he logs on, which is like, I guess he doesn't really log off that much. Um, But when he's on, he's, he's on, he's working, he's consuming it. He's like doing his job. He's an operator. I, I found myself to be like a very Like I'm part creative, I'm part strategic. Like where I fall into, like I'm I'm trying to come up with like different ideas. Um, And I I've been an editor at IJ for years, and I had had to do all the production myself. But like, you know, I find I get tired, I get exhausted uh, trying to write, come trying to come up with like new ideas uh, just day in day out. Like I would I burn out so fast. And Justin is uh, let's see if he started working at IJ in like 2014. Seven, seven, six, seven years of knowing him, and he's been just—I mean, he's on all the time. He's—he's all knowing. He knows everything that's going on on that site. I think he's moved into newsletters at this point a little bit more, and they have a lot of newsletters now. But the guy just has an appetite. Like Justin, never uh, let stupid stuff get by him. And I think, like you know, when the negatives don't exist, that's a—that's a really, really good person. The other thing is he's got like great judgment. Um, you know, a lot of editors today are like, well, we should cover that because everybody else is covering it or whatever. And that that may come across as like too woke or, you know, just kind of falling in that narrative monopoly or whatever, but uh I think Justin's got a good sense for uh reality.
0: What you just described reminds me of someone else you worked very closely with, which was Mike Allen, who you know, when I worked at Politico, I remember, you know, reading Playbook and everybody read Playbook and, you know, the story was, as you said, he got up really early and even the, the Mike's top 10 now today, I'm always impressed with how many stories that he pulls that aren't already in the news cycle or, if they're, or they're at least, you know, some sort of different angle. What was it like working with him?
1: I mean, I've been friends with Mike for, uh, a long time, years before I started at Axios and, uh, he is, I mean, sometimes like it's like over the top, but he's the most curious person in the world. Um, like he's the only person that's like, like your friend that like you go out to to lunch or drinks or, you know, we started going out to brunch a lot. Um, he would just be like, Hey, let's, let's go out and, and chat media or whatever. And, uh, he would like grab the back of the receipt and like take notes on something that like I would be saying or whatever. Like he's just like that kind of guy. But I think, you know, I got to see there... He's he's pretty like laid back when it comes to, um, you know, being like the leader in the room, like he wants to make sure that like everybody feels comfortable that there's donuts there that like he's infamous for buying everything like he he pays for food before, like before he even gets to the restaurant sometimes. <laughs> uh, and, and he's always like, it's crazy. It's like, I mean, it's kind of a game to see if you can pay for it. Um, but, uh, he's always trying to take care of everybody, but, you know, whereas Justin had the appetite for, for editing and making sure everything's right. Like Mike is a broker of information. He, his phone is busier than probably any phone in the world. Um, I would put it right up there and he's constantly on it. And he has this energy. That's just like, it's unlike anybody else I've ever seen. Um, I think he, uh, he's a bank of information. Like I think Axios AM is like a good bit, um, curated by Jim, I think Jim has like a really, really good editorial mind and a vision, and they're in constant contact. Um, I'd say over fifty percent of what Jim does every day is it leans editorial, even if he would never admit that. Um, but Mike is the the source of that information, and um, at this point, he's got people giving him stuff, uh, which I think is really cool. Like you, you know, you watch the younger ones; they try to get anything. And uh, Mike is mostly, um, you know, watching it come in and out. And he's more like weighing it against each other. But um, he reads everything. He knows everything. He's constantly talking to everybody. He goes out of his way to know people. So the amount of information that guy has is just like, I mean, it's unreal.
0: (laughs) Well, you also just mentioned Jim VandeHei. I don't think there's anyone better at getting attention for a story when he wants it i mean everything from the positioning to the wording to literally just corralling everyone on axios's staff to put it through their channels it's you know whenever there's a big scoop that axios has or some story that they want you're just almost guaranteed to see it and i feel like that's definitely a jim
1: van de production he's uh he's excellent at it he i really think he's um I mean, when you get to know him and, and I, I really like him, I got to know him pretty well. I, I reported directly to him for uh, most of my time there. You know, you, it's, it's, is he a visionary, I guess, is the question. And like, I, I think he is like um, you, you get to know him and he's really simple. Um, like he's not a, a super fancy guy. Um, you know, it's mostly uh, it's equitable. Like he wants the best ideas to win. And, and he's like he's one of the, the my favorite people I've ever worked with on that editorial side, I think he's, he's second to none. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, I saw the the power of packaging when we were at IJ review, you know, you're going out into the the Facebook world and trying to get your content to compete with others. So you see how important packaging is. And Jim's is at a level of influence that it's like, that's the tops in the game. Um, and I think that uh, that's one of the, the lesser known things is that Jim has a huge a huge role in 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 shaping um, the the direction and the framing of things, like a lot of things, um, you know, from AM to Jonathan Swan scoops to all that stuff, and he really uh, he never makes like too stupid mistakes. Like it's it's a rare thing that that he makes a a bad judgment call, and it's more often that he can pull back and see this big picture that that others can't see. Um, you know, he he's constantly harping in the newsroom on, you know, these are the stories that we need to own. And, you know, it was 2016. I remember uh, after Trump had won, he was like, this is real. Like, you know, this is not some fluke. We have to cover this with seriousness. Now, you might pick apart any, any one article you saw from that point on, but like that was what Jim was doing. He was going, China is a big uh, factor in, in global power dynamics and we need to cover it. We, we don't just need to cover what, you know, not to throw them under the bus, but like the hill.com just puts a lot of smut out there to get clicks. Like that's not what Jim says.
0: Yeah. I, I do think it definitely has to do with the fact that he's, he's from the Midwest and he kind of gets that, like I've heard him use the term real America before. <laughs> and, uh, and so he, he really does get that kind of everyday Joe, interest in the events that are going on and,
1: and also kind of like peeking behind the, the narrative monopoly. If you look at the the reporters that have come out from under his world, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Um, you know, Mike Allen, Maggie Haberman, Jonathan Martin, Ben Smith, Jonathan Swan, like there, there's a handful of others that are, um, you know, maybe not quite as big names as him as them, but uh, th- those people have done incredible work and, in, you uh, you know, it, it's a testament to to Jim's ability to, um, you know, understand what what works and what uh, you know, will have influence in the news and how to work with those people and how to shape the reporting that they do.
0: He's also a legit entrepreneur, right? Like, I think that that's what oh, yeah. a lot of people kind of gloss over whenever you listen to any of the media commentary on founding Axios. It's like you know that that thing is just not a given, right? I mean, obviously having mike allen and his contacts as you've just alluded to is a huge advantage to start but i mean they went from all right we're leaving politico and you know people in dc know who we are to i would i would be hard pressed to to say that most people who follow the news in america don't know who they are with a sustainable business it seems like
1: yeah. He's like back to the big picture thing. Like he, he sees how it fits. He sees where, you know, where they have unique value and he knows, I mean, I feel like he's kind of created this world, like, you know, through Politico where, you know, if you're going to get uh, at uh, the influential eyeballs, like he's creating the pathway there and and that's worth, uh, you know, a good bit of money. Um, you know, I, I think they, there's some tales. i um, you know, God knows how true they are. I'm sure they are. But like, the goal of playbook was to get viewed by one person, the the speaker of the house. And I think when you take that mindset, uh, you end up getting really good eyeballs, um, in contrast to a lot of just, you know, vapid eyeballs, and, and that's worth a lot of money. And, you know, when you look at all the corporate social responsibility dollars that, that, uh, flow into Washington. I I think Jim was a a pioneer of creating that world. Um, it probably would have happened, uh, in in any circumstances, but, but Jim did it. And I think that that's, that's really the difference is like Jim's not going to sit back and let somebody else do it.
0: Yeah. Mastering the, the sale of, of inventory that is not based on CPMs is, uh, is quite the the trick to pull. I I know a guy who was high up in ad sales at one of the big three newspapers. And he told me, I think you might know who he is. Uh, he told me that he once sold a full page ad for a hundred K because they wanted to, the, the advertiser wanted to reach one specific person who they knew read hard copy. And so that's, it's the same thing, right? It's like, yeah, these these few people are reading this, and if you want to reach them, this is the way to do it. And CPMS don't matter.
1: Yeah, I mean CPMS are cool. Uh, they're like, <laughs> you know, they're they're a they're a neato way to to uh, I guess put value upon metrics. But at the end of the day, those metrics aren't aren't qualitative. And you know, when you got to get that one dude uh, to see your message, it, that that transcends the CPMS and all the the metrics and stuff. Um, and, and I think that that's thinking outside of the box of like, what is the CPM is smart.
0: It is smart. I mean, I will say there is a cap on, on that market. Um, you can only scale so far with that,
1: but it's not based in fundamentals either, but like, you know, uh, I think that's, that's the, uh, the interesting side behind it. Like for instance, I'm a, I'm a big golfer. Like how can you put a a number, uh, on getting in front of a golf audience, you know, like they're, they're apt to buy like it's like you can you can say what they are you can point at them but like it's not just like a cpm metrics game like it, it's not gonna work like that
0: right i think it was uh david ogilvy who said that he bought a jaguar once he got rich because of an ad he saw like 15 years earlier and he's like how how are you going to quantify that yeah and so so yeah it's 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 uh it's an interesting business but you're you're talking about dollars here I know that you were heavily involved in the quote unquote pivot to video. So where, where were yeah. you at that time and what was your involvement?
1: Yeah. So uh, the pivot to video years were, I mean, they're really like 2017, 2018. That's, that's kind of how I viewed them. Axios launched uh, beginning of or middle of January 17. So, I mean, I, I felt like I was there right in the middle of it. I always look at like the companies like um, now, this Mike.com, the Dodo uh buzzfeed was big back then vox was uh vox was doing a lot of youtube explainer stuff but
0: let's set the stage here we're also for people that don't know we're talking about the pivots video which was basically like facebook saying that there was going to be a gold mine if publishers started producing video right yeah like uh,
1: you want me to go back kind of like through through the the how we got there kind of stuff yeah sure so I think what uh I guess if you look back at Facebook, you know, they said uh we're gonna we're gonna connect everybody. And then um I was a freshman in college, so I was like, I was I was primed to come up in the, the Facebook. Oh okay. Era. So we're going, I remember we're going way like, back here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like I remember there was like a handful of schools and like we were one of the first, I don't know, hundred or whatever. Um, but you just got connected to people and then um they would slowly add features and like I think you know, to distill it down into you know a short nugget, like the more shit that they put on there, the more time people spent, um, whether that was pictures I mean, at one point you had like aquariums on your profile page, but like eventually that became the news feed and the more uh, the more stuff that you could put on the newsfeed, the more times you could get somebody back into that platform, like using that app more and uh, back in I want to say it was like twenty eleven or twelve they put in pages, and a few people saw the future that if you could get a lot of eyeballs. You would be able to like you know hold some power. You'd be able to get messages out to these people. Um, the guy who started IJ Review saw this. The people at Upworthy, Buzzfeed, you know, there were some some early pioneers uh, in growing these audiences there. And it quickly became, you know, how much how much traffic can you send elsewhere? And that's when uh, you know the uh, the banner ad boom was just like I mean, people were making money hand over fist. But it was basically the the, the question was like, how much content can you make? I was thinking earlier today, you know, and uh, kind of just thinking about this conversation going into this, like, do you remember like Distractify and Viral Nova? Like nobody needed to see like 27 awesome pictures of rockets, but like it had never been done before, you know? So like, there's this like whole new world of content out there. And Facebook was looking at that going like, I mean, I'm gonna uh, speak for Facebook. Uh, I I experienced it, but they, they were looking at it going like, okay, how can we get them on our system? there were things like instant articles and eventually it was video and there was always like this, this promise of like, well, this, this thing's going to be the ticket. Um, This thing is going to be the thing that monetizes. You just have to work within our ecosystem. And along the way, um, if you, if you think about this explosion of content uh, you've got algorithms and those algorithms were starting to govern this surplus of content. There's, there's too much. So like now you've got a supply and demand problem now you've got ads now you've got all these people who've been growing these audiences. You've got all of this content, and then the way to govern it is to, to basically make money uh, in a, a variable in this equation. So um, they knew that uh, all these pages were growing, and you know when it came time to uh, to monetize video, that was like the big bet. That was the thing that separated um, the haves from the have-nots. Like if you had enough money to get into video, you had these like these really. I'll call them good products, but like there, there's a, a high barrier for entry on like the, the cost side of it. It costs a lot of money to put together a lot of videos. But if you could do that, that's the stuff that went really far in the algorithm. Well, that's why all those venture capital companies invested in it. They said like, hey, the, the more videos we make, the more viewers we have, the more we'll grow, the more we'll monetize. And fast forward, it didn't play out like that. The money never really came. They instituted ad roll or, or mid mid roll and all this stuff, but like, it, it never really worked out. I mean, people have made plenty of money off of it, but it wasn't like, you know, the uh, it, it wasn't the answer for video. So in 2017, 18, all these companies were putting together uh, readable videos. Cause that's the thing that got them, th- got the viewer through three seconds. You know, it's funny to look back and go like, all you have to do is get them through three or five or 10 seconds. And it was considered a view. Uh, but uh, you know, if you look at that time, um, I remember now. This uh, was they were funded by the same venture capital company as Axios. The number one video on on Now This was about how a llama escaped from like the zoo or wherever was. <laughs> you know, it was like you got a llama running around town. And It's like it's funny. You know, you you, you used to see that stuff. Uh, you know, fifteen years ago, uh, and all of a sudden you see it and it's like that's you know that's novel, I guess. But um, that's all it was. And I think, um, you know, we at Axios looked at that and said, like, this is not the future. Um, Ultimately, we did a lot of research and it said, you know, don't be platform dependent. Um, If you're platform independent, like you have a video product that's so good that it's viewed on on all the different platforms, you you stand a good chance to make some money there. But um, if you're completely dependent upon, you know, just Facebook for your video views or whatever, It's gonna be a tough road. Um, and you you play by their rules. You're building a business on top of their and and
0: so are you at IJ or Axios at this point when everyone's diving into this?
1: I I was at Axios primarily. I we had seen the beginnings of it at at IJ Review, and um, you know, one of the the pressures we faced was uh it was what's our video presence gonna be? And and our argument was like, let's make these like awesome viral videos that are just like you know, really, uh, really crazy with the GOP candidates like we had Lindsey Graham smashing cell phones and, and Ted Cruz cooking bacon uh, on a machine gun. And we had Sarah Palin acting as as Tina Fey in a, a 30 Rock spoof um, and kind of and reversing the role. The, the Lindsey Graham one was because Trump gave out
0: his cell phone number.
1: Yeah. I mean, and we were like, look, nobody else is, is viewing politics like we are. Um, we, we said, let's let's have the most fun with this. Um, let's call lindsey graham's office let's get them to say like hey reinterpret your like your press release that nobody would read let's reinterpret that as a video and and do it through us and uh of course he was pissed that trump gave out his cell phone but like watching him destroy cell phones uh was the most entertaining way to to articulate that uh so we, we had said let's go with this high production value approach and it really changed our brand we went from like right-wing clickbaiters to to, uh, you know, these, these creative kids that are, that were, you know, mostly center right. Um, but what we did not want to do was like, let's make a video every day. Let's make three videos every day. I, I heard at one point now this uh, workers, and, and I don't know this exactly, but, you know, through the grapevine, I've heard that people were supposed to make like two and three videos a day, like, like that's a lot of videos to be making. Like you got to be making some stupid stuff to make that that quantity of content. But it's not about the video at that point. It's about the platform growth.
0: So you mentioned earlier that the same VC was between these two companies. One of them was you uh, think you said now this, and then Axios was the second one. So were you getting that outside pressure at Axios in, in your role? Because I know that you did a lot. In terms of
1: uh, video at Axios, too, there was pressure. Um, I don't know how direct it was coming from the VC, so I can't like really, really talk exactly to that. But I mean, there was pressure to like, what's our strategy? Um, if not what all these other you know hip video companies were doing, then what? And and I was looking at Vox, going like, they seem to be doing like they have a great model. They had the explainers. Series and they had borders and they had just launched this thing called Earworm and like you know they were branching off from this like pretty cool series that like you know there were good quality like five to ten minute videos I'll call them that that were really good on YouTube um, that that people watched a lot and like for long periods of time and and they they'd view them from YouTube to the website to Facebook to whatever. Um, I looked at that and I was like, that to me seems like the the direction to go. Like you need to have like a really good quality product that, uh, that people remember you for somebody told me along the way, they were like, if I held up a New York times from like across a subway car from you, like, would you know what it is? And I was like, I, I think I actually would. If I showed you a Vox video on like a phone from 25 feet away, you'd probably know it's a Vox video. So like, we took that mindset into it and go like, w- we were like, we, we need to create something that's like very very axios a news nugget with like readable text at the bottom is not that doesn't scream axios so we took a a bit of a a different route but like closer closer to vox we we wanted to create our format that was you know you knew it was our format so that um you know not only did the audience want to watch it but when it flipped over to the business side the advertiser knew what to do with it if you show them a vox explainer um, they know it's like, okay, we're going to have to explain something in our business. Same thing at Axios. Ours just had a, a slightly different format there. I learned a ton along the way. I did a lot of research on this and it gets back to um, active consumption versus passive consumption, which like this, this goes off the, the deep end a little bit and gets a little bit wonky. But I found that the, uh, the only places that made money from video had active consumption. They had people coming to them. It wasn't passive consumption um that's like you know you're on you, you you go to twitter facebook whatever and and you see a video and you might watch it but like you don't intend to watch that that has very low value from like a, a monetization standpoint so um we knew that we had to create something that was like uh had an attraction to it that that people would want to go out of their way for and, and bookmark and come back to and, and you know have that kind of behavior and you know i'll say our our videos they were viewed at rates that were um uh the volume of views was not uh there as much. Like, you know, they were in the tens of thousands most times, or I guess hundreds of thousands sometimes across the platforms, but they were viewed for uh like 75 to 90% completion rates on YouTube. Like, I mean, it was a, a an astonishingly high number. Um, just because we were trying to get uh the focus on the content itself and and have the format be reflective of that.
0: Yeah, I think the also the conclusion here was outside of, you know, it seems like you figured it out was a lot of these companies that did quote unquote pivot to video ended up going bust. Right. So like com yes. and uh, I think you said Upworthy, like a lot of them just don't exist anymore because Facebook pulled the rug out. I mean, it's not really, I'm hesitant to say that it's, you know, Facebook did this to them because these are companies that made the that choice on their own but they, they were dependent on Facebook for distribution
1: and that was no longer there. Yeah. I mean, Facebook is, I can't say they're to blame um, because it was pretty clear what was happening. And like, you can't, you can't look at Facebook and be like, you know, oh, you guys are like totally bad guys for this or whatever. But like, it was clear what was going to happen. The thing I will say is they did come in and like meet with you and say, Hey, like if you just do this, it'll like it's going to monetize. And it was always like it was the carrot out in front of you before they pulled the rug out. And, and you know, like I remember New York Times, like at one point was like, we're not going to mess around with this Facebook stuff. Like, I don't know if you remember instant articles, but like yeah. instant articles was supposed to be like the holy grail of like reading uh, articles. And like it was like a kind of a shitty platform inside of their app to read articles that forced publishers to play inside of their rules. So it's like if they had ads on their domain, like they didn't play, like it, it wasn't like the same ad experience in there. So it monetized differently. And it's like, why am I monetizing it? Like, you know, some percentage of like what I do on my site, like, why am I even playing this game? And, you know, fast forward to today, like, sure, Facebook, there's a lot of people on Facebook. Um, but uh, there's less of a, a focus on making that be the the exclusive uh, fire hose of, of money. <laughs> I,
0: I do think it's hilarious that so much of the narratives around Facebook were were wrong when there was other stuff to actually pick at, right? Like you talked about how they inflated video views and I think I've seen a, a few articles, but it really hasn't turned into a huge dust up, but they've, they've definitely been caught inflating metrics on that stuff and charging advertisers more. And I actually think that there are a metric shit ton of fake fake accounts on Facebook. Like I almost never go on there. I think my Facebook is is deactivated, but whenever I do go on there, I swear I'm always seeing like the f- just really fake accounts and the media just attack them relentlessly for the 2016 election. And it was like that that's not the right angle. Like there's just so much to pick at and that just wasn't it. And I I just think it's a a great example of the narrative monopoly where it's like one outlet or a handful of outlets like picked up that narrative and just ran with it despite the fact that it wasn't the highest fidelity narrative they actually could have gone with. And this video one is a great example. You know, these guys came in and told us we'd make money and then pulled a rug right out from under us. uh, You know, that's kind of shady.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like... uh... I try to think back, like, would they have done something differently knowing what they know now? And like, of course, like, I, I think, you know, one of the tales that, uh, you know, I wasn't in Facebook, but like you hear that that uh, uh, Zuckerberg moved his office to be by the, the ads people once they realized uh, how much money they were making, but before he was by the engineers, because he liked, you know, having that proximity. And it's like, you know, you've got those incentives inside of the company and uh, of course they're going to go in that direction. Like, you know, it's made them so much more money and it's made them central to advertising, like not just digitally, just central to advertising. I mean, that is massive. Like if I've got a client today that wants to advertise, like I mean, the first place I think about is, is Facebook, Instagram, because it's like the, the, the best ads platform for sure. Um, but I, I do think there was, uh, and I mean, there still is like, there's, there's a lack of understanding of like what the ramifications of that are, I guess I'll say. Like I remember Facebook's team came down to uh to to Axios at one point and they were like just asking us how we used the platform. And it was like the first time they had talked to a newsroom and I was like, guys, like, I you know, I've been <laughs> like I've been talking to y'all for like three or four years, even back at IJ and all this stuff. And like, you, you don't know this. And they're like, they were like amazed that I, I had like an analytics uh, monitor up and like I would look at like I had like a, we had a miniature page that we would use to test articles to see like how they worked before leveling it up to the big page. And then we would know, like we would have an expectation to like the, you know, hundreds of people um, out of tens of thousands, like how many people would be clicking on an article in real time. Like it was like driving like a a race car. Like you, you, you knew what was going to happen if you just, you know, um, could measure it right, could experiment right and kind of like get that vibe right. You know, back to the stuff we were talking about earlier with, with with Vandahyde, like if you got the packaging right, like you knew you could have a hit. They just like never had the right idea. They were always like, oh, this is like, like more people are seeing stuff. Like well, how wonderful. <laughs> and it's like, well, there's, okay, <laughs> let's pump the brakes on that. Like not, that's not all good. Yeah, I do think all of the pearl clutching
0: around the stuff that, zuck actually gets accused of is all just so stupid because again the biggest thing that he's done and the company has done is this unrelenting focus on growth in terms of time on site and engagement and all the things that pull those levers or 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 all the things that actually drive uh those metrics rather are things that are bad for society, generally speaking, like you can write all, all of these clickbait articles and all of these, you know, I'm going to be the most outrageous politician or, you know, business person, whatever. Uh, it's all just putting it into the spreadsheet, as you said, and saying like, okay, we're going to get this out of it. And it's both on, on the publisher side of what you're saying. It's like, well, the incentives exist. And then on their side, like they are, they're, they're laying that framework. And I think they have tried to they've tried to do a lot i think that um you know the story that hasn't been written which really should was all of the kind of crazy stuff from 2016 and whatnot and um and and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole but all of the, the stuff about like fake news was absolute nonsense fake news has been around forever um in fact it was way worse when you couldn't fact check it in real time and it was just a print copy but we we can go down that road if you want but um, all of that, all of the the craziness, got pushed down in groups, and groups were not necessarily publicly available, uh, like the pages were, and it was just kind of hilarious because if you really dug in, it was like so obvious that that's that's what was happening and still is happening, but there's no, it's it's not as good of a, a cudgel to, you know, knock Facebook with, so you don't really
1: hear about it. Yeah, I I mean, if you if you zoom out, like I I try to, uh, you know, not get too uh, caught up in the news of the day, I I try to zoom out and go like, what does this look like over a 100 year window, like if you zoom out to uh, like a much, much broader perspective, I I think like, uh, you start to see like how much how new this is, like, when I was in high school, which like, um, you know, was 2000 to 2004. Um, you know, we had IMAX, like, you know, there was like, uh, God you know, damn, these you're old man. Things. I know, uh, <laughs> ask Jeeves, like, I mean, it wasn't like, there wasn't this explosion of content. The access to create content was like not there. Like people didn't have cell phones. Like I remember I was in college when I got my first text message. So like there there wasn't this like, you know, uh, opportunity to just like sit there and create and create and create and post and like consume. And like, that was, I remember when I went abroad in a, in, uh, 2007 like i was like well i guess to keep up with the news i'll just go to cnn.com because like what the fuck else do i like i don't know other websites like i i didn't you know i didn't know anything about the news but when you open up that opportunity via a platform like facebook and eventually the incentives that are there are going to bring out that behavior to create and you know the technology increases like it's it's a it's a bubble it's a boom and and i think you're watching it it burst right now and you're seeing this play out Uh, in very unexpected ways like you know GameStop and what's happened there is not unrelated to this it's people that felt like oh like the big broad messaging like did not resonate with us so we fell into this niche Um, and, and they call themselves like this you know derogatory name and they say like we're you know it's it's we're the David against Goliath and like the internet has has gone big, and I think it's falling back into niches now. I don't I don't think the big stuff like goes away, but I think the niches grow and they get stronger. and And you know, in some cases, um, it's a it's a really good thing. In other cases, it, it's not. and And I think that's what people are wrestling with. Like that's the big, you know, media question is is how do you handle this stuff? But um, at the end of the day, it 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 is happening whether they like it or not.
0: Yeah, I do think a lot of the. Good things that the big companies, specifically Facebook and Google, have done for the internet do get glossed over. I mean, obviously, you can make the argument that on net, they're worse than what they were. But you know, if you're starting a publication, like Google actually makes it super easy to do that. I mean,
1: Facebook has done a lot i, I mean I, I personally like I, I I don't like them personally like yeah. I, I I look through them and I'm like, why am I looking through this? like this is so stupid like this is just memes and like you see how much is like choreographed like just to you know just be on there and it's just like all the stupidest shit like just just because people want to get like numbers or be there's also there's you know the good sides to it like it makes things easy like I get I get awesome ads there's like new products like people can you know like my parents as a small business can market things to like tighter audiences now like there there's there's good and bad like um you know as much as like i may hate it like it was going to happen um one way or another
0: yeah that's fair i think your point about them being all around was actually really well articulated by ben thompson probably like 6 months ago where he wrote an article about how they're going they're just always going to be around in the same way that gm and ford were always around and they weren't as mighty as they once used to be but The the businesses that they already have in place. I mean, they're they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, they make so much money.
1: Like, yeah, I think like you know, there's kind of the old. I guess it's a trope in some ways. Like. You know, there's, there's a monopoly of like a handful at the top of each industry. It's like, you know, who's breaking in now? Um, I think people looked at Snapchat and they were like, ooh, like they kind of, you know, they, they got stepped on a little bit by Facebook when they didn't sell for like a ton, but like, you know, they're doing okay. Um, I have a hard time seeing like a bunch of new ones, new platforms come about. Um, but they can chip like, away. They they can chip away. Um, Like I think you see this with like AWS. Like when they came out, like they had like a, I mean, what felt like a monopoly over it. And like right now, you know, several years later, there's there's competition from you know from Microsoft in particular. But um, it's it's tough to break in, you know, in a world like that. I'll say that much.
0: Well, Clubhouse is obviously doing a great job. I've never seen anything grow as quickly as Clubhouse. It's insane. I go on there and I get like notifications of people in my contacts who if I just read their name I would not know who they are like met them years ago probably at a bar or something and all of a sudden they're my friend on clubhouse
1: what what's your uh what's your take
0: I think clubhouse is pretty cool I think it's it's definitely something that is different enough where it justifies you know the hype around it uh I do think why, it's why is that I mean, it's such a, it is like a extension of podcasting where now all of a sudden it's live and there's a live audience that can come in and out. You can ping people to come up on, uh, in the, I mean, imagine if we could just, you know, we we're talking about Jim Van High earlier, just ping him right, right into this podcast. That That's pretty cool. I do think that there is a, uh, you know, th- there's definitely a, a tailwind from people just being in their houses still, you know, it's still not back to normal, yeah. but it's a really big world. I think they're, I think they're going to grow to be pretty large. Um, you know, the question is, do they, do they add features like text or whatever? How how do they actually monetize? Are they going to just like, you know, do banner ads? Are they going to like cut into different shows and, you know, say this is presented by someone? Yeah. And, I don't know. I think it's sketchy that they're using that uh that Chinese company, and my data is on
1: Chinese soil. <laughs> not really pumped about that, but I'm sure that's not the only way it's over there. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like it's Clubhouse is um it's interesting. Like I, I think that uh, one of the perspectives that I have is like things will fall, like communities will form, and I think that this is a really good way for communities to form. Um, I I tend to think anything on the internet gets like a little bit bastardized. Like, you know, you give somebody the ability to write and like next thing you know, you've got two thousand words before like how do I just like cook the fucking muffins, you know? Oh, if you if Um, you go
0: on there during the day, there it is the most whack content. I've ever seen. it's so wild. It's like 20 emojis and it's like social media
1: success guaranteed. It's like,
0: yeah, I'm, yeah,
1: pretty, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, the, you know, the big tech dogs, like they're, they're going there because they can take the conversations there. I think that's like, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, I, I don't know. I always take the under on these things. I'm, I'm wrong a lot, but like, I, I'm just like, I don't need more content. Like I don't need to hear like more people. I logged on to Twitter and i won't name this reporter uh there was doing um uh is it spaces that's their competitor twitter yeah. spaces yeah uh yeah and it was like the dumbest thing i've ever heard like somebody was like what? <laughs> they were like what is it like being a tech reporter and the person was like well uh we report on uh, tech and like the things that like happen in tech and i was like oh my like why is this conversation happening so like i think a lot of it's stupid but like I think from the people that you don't hear from that are behind this like curtain that you know uh, th- that you would like to hear from more, like it provides a cool platform for stuff like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm all for the democratization of content and and media. And I do think that the, the fact that you can't clip it, I mean, you obviously there are ways around it where you can record conversations and people have already figured it out. But naturally on the platform you can't record the conversations and, you know, it's, it's ephemeral. It's just like, it's gone once it's, once it's been said. And I do think that that is a huge advantage, especially in the times we're living in where you say one thing wrong and you're, you're canceled.
1: So. (laughs) I mean, I mean, so far it's uh, most of the headlines that I've read about clubhouse are like, Gotcha. Like I heard somebody say a bad word or whatever. And it's like, you know, reporters at at, uh, well known institutions saying, like, look, I do think
0: I do think that um, if you if you log on to Twitter, you'll see a lot of people dunking on the New York Times, who's, they're specifically leading this charge against clubhouse. And they wrote this article about how there are unfettered conversations on clubhouse and and that's problematic and i mean we don't have to we don't have to exfoliate this issue uh th- there are unfettered conversations on telephones and in parks uh and on buses i don't get why day. they
1: yeah i don't get why they they pick that out like i uh, you know they this is like one of the things about the media that just drives me nuts like They'll write an article and be like, "Technically, this thing is wrong," and it's like, "Yes, but like, if you contextualize that with like everything else, like it is no longer crazy." It's like, you know, there is crazy shit said on Twitter all day long. Well, like, why aren't they writing articles about Twitter and, and like how people are bullying and like all that yeah, kind of stuff?
0: Like, it, I think it's two things, right? It's the it's the shiny new thing, so they have to write about it, um, and
1: and they weren't the first ones invited on there, so you know, they're a little bit salty. But it's so antagonistic. That's that's the problem. Is nope. like, they're like, well, we're just reporting the facts. And it's like, they are objective facts, but like, you clearly have an agenda here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that I really, I tweeted this today, basically saying, because um, it was, uh, what was it? Oh yeah, it was an article in the Washington Post about how the vaccines were not distributed to people who lived next to the vaccine plant first or something like that. And I tweeted, I was like, this is, this is what I mean by news is manufactured. And I I will keep beating that point home forever. News is manufactured. There are facts that exist and you can cobble them together in any way that you would like. And you can include or exclude any set of facts to tell the story in any way that you would like. And obviously there are news events like 9-11 or something like that, where it's just like, okay, this we're obviously reporting on this, but on a day-to-day basis, stories like that are wholeheartedly manufactured. They sit in a newsroom and they say, okay, here's this tidbit. How can we take this and turn it into a story? And like, what angle are we coming from? I mean, they probably just had the idea of, I would would put money on this. I, I would say they had the idea of, let's write a story about how uh, underprivileged people are not getting the vaccine enough and they decided, okay, let's uh, let's figure this out. Let's, let's actually go to, let's set this thing, uh, the backdrop, like right next to the facility so we can get the picture of the person right outside the facility. And then we're gonna go interview a few of those people and then we're gonna choose the people that say bad things about the facility. And that's how they write it. And look, the, these are the facts I have you know these are the facts i have you don't have to write the story that way if you don't want me to to critique it all i want yeah. is a more honest transparent world and that's why i also tweeted last week that on every single story if the media wanted us to trust them on everything they should release their internal slack messages and emails and whatever other communication yeah. at the end good, of the good, story good luck what are you hiding? What are you hiding? Just release the slack messages talking about the story.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Like if you look at any one isolated article, like it can make sense. It's just like the the body of work that starts to look like crazy where you're like, "Why why this?" Like, why does why does the algorithm like jacking this thing in my face? I think like uh one of the things that that I I kind of have thought about over time is like if you look back 50 years ago, they had to meet the printing press. So like their production cycle was like once per day, but like when you add in, you know, digital, Facebook, all these different platforms, like all of a sudden your production cycle is, it's never ending. Like try to go count the number of articles that that CNN is, is producing in a day. I remember back, you, you're asking about IJ's metrics, Huffington Post was like, they were one of the biggest uh, in the world. They were publishing like thirty-six thousand articles a month, and it was like a lot of them were, you know, random freelancers that basically used it as like a platform, and they take, you know, anything from everybody. But like, I remember we had in the hundreds, and I was like, what? How the? What are we going to do to get to thirty-six thousand? You know, like, that was like, I guess the the time at which I realized like, okay, like, this is not the future. The future is like is is more focused coverage and like the big stuff will continue to work and it's always going to like probably be the big stuff on platforms like bleacher report is going to dominate sports reporting on social media for as long as as time will exist as far all
0: right we had a little technical difficulties it was my fault. My computer needs some more memory, which uh, is something that the narrative monopoly podcast hopes to solve uh, in a, in a timely fashion. So we can avoid that in the future, but Bubba is still here. Thanks for still being here, Bubba. Um, Let's let's uh, let's close this thing. And uh, I'm curious, why aren't you on Twitter anymore?
1: So uh, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell a little bit of the backstory here. Um, you know, back in the IJ days, uh, I was the editor in chief. So I get the blue check mark. I'm all cool, you know. Like my friends back home are like, whoa, you're verified. So uh it's pretty easy to gain followers. Um if you have the blue check mark. You just like tweet a bunch of stuff. And like we would do a lot on debate nights. I don't know if you remember like the vines back at IJ, but uh we would do some wild stuff on on Twitter. And um, I would always like I had a play in my playbook. I would I'd say like here were, you know, the interesting Google search terms and like, I would always get like hundreds of retweets. Like I would just, I don't know, it was kind of a game to me, but I always found Twitter to be kind of dumb. Cause it's people just yelling like their takes into the sky, which is just like a weird concept to me in general. It's like, I don't, I don't need Horrible. to hear from, I don't need to hear from people like that. Like, I just don't care about what people have to say as much. Uh, so fast forward at, at Axios, you know, I hired all these kids and they were like 22, 23, 24 coming out of college. And they're like, Hey man, like we're reporters. Like you're the social guy. Can you get us, uh, verified? And I was like, yeah, but Twitter's stupid. So like, don't get on it. Uh, and they were like, well, you're on Twitter. And I was like, fine, I'll get off. So I got off. I got them all verified. I got off. And then like, you know, down the road, of course, I'm sitting in the newsroom watching everybody tweet. And I was like, well, I'll get back on. And I was like, but I'll exclusively try to go viral. Like, I'm just going to, you know, do my best to, to uh, just get shit to go far. And like the first month I went viral like three times. Like the first one, I clipped a, um, a 60 minutes thing uh, with Betsy DeVos and it, it got like, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 retweets or something like that. And then, a few weeks later, my dog got in the trash, and uh Charlie is like the sweetest dog in the world, and just like the love of my life and uh she was just always so nervous well, every let's time hope your wife isn't listening I, <laughs> well her too uh, but uh <laughs> but Charlie got in the trash, and she was like i mean she 's the guiltiest dog in the world like she is a she is a Labrador like she is just like you know whenever she 's done something wrong, she knows it like she feels so bad like she she knows that that she wasn't supposed to do that. So she comes like creeping around the corner, like one paw at a time. And I, I tweet that it was like, can you tell if Charlie got in the trash or something like that? And it gets like, I think it got like 80,000 retweets or something, but like along the way, people were like, people were like, Oh, like you abuse your dog. Like, you know, no dog acts like that unless like, you hit him. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I was sick to my stomach. I, I mean, I remember I was at Axios just like staring at my phone, which was buzzing like, you know, every half second. Like it was just, I mean, the battery lasted like an hour because it was just like, and I was like, I hate this. Like, I really don't like this. Uh, And then a few, I guess it was like a week later, um, I used to take Charlie to uh, daycare and they'd give her a report card. And it was like, Charlie played well with Buck today. And he gave her like an A plus or something. And I tweeted that. And then that went really far. (laughs) And it became a meme and like people photoshopped it with like turtles and they're like, this is not a dog. It's supposed to, like, this is a turtle like fail. Uh, and, and it was just like, it, it was just back in, I guess I was getting a lot of chatter again. And I was like, I really don't like this. So I deleted all of my tweets except for the ones with Charlie. You can see those. And uh, I, I go back to what I call the, we call it at Axis, at, at the platinum plan. You can, you can give up your account. <laughs> That's the best option that you possibly have. Um, johnston used to say that because twitter is like you know nothing good comes off of twitter anything good on twitter stays on twitter anything bad on twitter would jump off and cause ramifications in the real world so i said like hey like stay true to your beliefs just don't tweet just get off of twitter and don't tweet so i have it up so i can like click into stuff and read stuff for work or whatever but i uh you will not find me tweeting and if i am tweeting um, I, I'm feeling a little, a little saucy and I want to, you know, see what's going on out there in the world. And if I can get a reaction, but, uh,
0: yeah, are you going to throw any bombs or what?
1: At. I, I mean, I've, so I I've thought about just going out. I, I tell my friends, like, I'm really, really cynical with my friends. And, uh, I say like, I should launch my account and just throw like haymaker bombs, but like do one in the morning. That's like one side of an issue and then just completely flip it for the, the other side in the afternoon and just see what happens. Cause you know, a lot of people wouldn't see the other version and I could just be like, oh, yeah. you know, rain communist on one side and like fall a right winger on the other. And just, you know, it's like, what, what's the problem? Like if I'm doing it on purpose, like that's like what people do on Twitter.
0: That's also hilarious that people thought that uh, you abused your dog. It's like somehow they came to that conclusion. Uh, I, I've seen people, now that you can tweet without adding replies, I've seen people tweet super controversial stuff and just like on purpose leave off the reply function. And oh, you yeah. just see people get so heated. Uh, I mean, I don't it, sh- it shouldn't it. affect you.
1: It shouldn't affect you that much. Like you should be able to be like, Hey, like this is some random dude with like a, you know, an egg in his avatar, but like when it hits you, you're like, Oh man, I mean, and I'm maybe I'm like sensitive or something like that, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's become a platform where there's just, there's no ramifications. So like people just launch bombs and it's like, you know, with, with the right attitude, it's entertaining, but like it, it can be bullying.
0: Yeah. I just think so many people spend so much time on there that it's like just straight up hooked into their veins.
1: And it's dopamine. Yeah, we, I, That's, really that's what we talked about at IJ. Like we would make, I mean, we were making really funny stuff and like vines that were just ridiculous, but like it was a game. Like how many, how many dopamine retweets can you get? Like, but you know, that's, that's the game that you play. There's some people that view it as like, like Jonathan Swan, for instance, it's totally a broadcasting vehicle for his life's work. Like the guy is a reporter's reporter. Um, and he views twitter as like a vehicle to get his message out there but like for everybody else they're just like fuck it's like hey this is like my brand or you know it's like nobody cares about you but they're just like hey here's my thought on this and you're just like shut up
0: the absolute worst is uh is is the tech twitter with people tweeting platitudes that have been going around for for years it's like an emoji for for 10 different things where it's like eat meat get eight hours of sleep <laughs>
1: like invest
0: yeah. in bitcoin and uh just all, all that all these just platitudes and then somehow i just don't get it it's like all of these people just start liking and retweeting it. it's like what do you th- this is not some deep insightful thing like these yeah. are obviously
1: like true things but how does this get you going man i don't know i like you know, maybe I was like brought up different. I don't know what the the reason is, but like I, with my clients, I've I've tried to take a mindset that like action is the only thing that matters. Like at the end of the day, like all like everything on the internet is like it's here today, gone tomorrow. So it's like, can you can you build value in the long term? Like for me personally, can I like actually move the needle, not just like be like a loud mouth, like the Lincoln Project. Like they had no, they were they were doing nothing. Like they were making money for themselves. Generational. wealth. Did you see that quote? Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. Uh, but I think that there's like a lack of people that understand how to build, you know, true value digitally. And, um, I think it's, uh, that's where I want, uh, you know, my work to be at least.
0: I think that's, uh, that's probably a good place to end it.
1: Great. Well uh thanks for having me. This has been fun. I hope I uh uh I hope I I get slotted in the right time. You know,
0: when uh when things go haywire on the Narrative Monopoly podcast, now people know, you know, I'll who's be back. I'll be back. <laughs> who's coming who's coming on to clean it up. Yeah. And when things yeah. go right, people now know, you know, who uh who's responsible for the success. The man the guy behind the guy right now.
1: Yeah, all success to me, all liability to you.
0: (laughs) Sounds like a fair deal.
1: Perfect. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Good to see you. There you have it. Sorry for the technical difficulties there. Um, Kind of cut us off when we were right on a riff, but hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. I think the last point I wanted to make there was that when the media is attacking Clubhouse, it really just comes back to power dynamics. You know, if somebody can publish on Clubhouse or rather speak on Clubhouse uh, without the mediating institution that is the legacy media, that is an affront to their power. And I don't even mean that in a sinister way. When you think about it, their power is derived from being able to act as a kill switch to information basically a router of information and so when people can just go direct that is an attack on their power directly or indirectly it is an affront to their power so this is a trend that obviously we've talked about a lot on this podcast and we'll probably continue to Uh, But I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Bubba and please tune in next week.